Welcome back, listeners, to Agile Disrupted, a podcast for the people in the trenches of Agile, where voices are heard and stories are shared. We got an awesome lineup of speakers today, but to start, you have your host, Tabby, which is me. We have MC. Hello. Hello, MC. We have Matt Miller. Hey. <laughs> okay, Matt, you can be a little excited because we're really happy you came back. Hi, so. everyone. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Remember me. <laughs> awesome. We, we remember you, Matt, and we're, we're glad you came back. And we also got a comeback as well from Jake Tyndall. Thanks for coming back, Jake. Hey, hey. Awesome. Cool. So today's synopsis is going to be very, very interesting, and it might be a little long-winded, but get ready. So I want to ask all of you on this episode, if I had asked you, how do we come up with ideas? Right. Think about your last memory of experiencing recognition or even ridicule from someone or an audience of someone's of your particular idea. Was it a fleeting thought or was it the result of a perfectly packaged set of circumstances? And what does that question even really mean? Um, the very definition of idea has countless interpretations. When you hear the opening question for a remarkable founder sharing his or her success story, how do you think they respond to being asked, so-and-so product is groundbreaking. How did you come up with the idea? And you just, you, you hear their stories, like a long-winded story, right? And you hear that and you still have the same question. So how do we come up with ideas? We imagine them. I immediately think of Dom Cobb from the movie Inception where he gives his opening monologue. They say we only use a fraction of our brain's true potential when we're awake. Now when we're asleep, we can do almost anything. Our ideas are born in our imagination, but unless we do something about them, they live there too. And the evolution of an idea or even a belief turning into a successful product always circles back to its origin story. Minimum viable product. Our most bittersweet bittersweet acronym in the Agile realm, because we all have a taste of that in our roles. So when an idea is born, it commands a hypothesis to drive an experiment. And what exactly requires that hypothesis to become a viable product versus something that has, uh, let's say, minimally viable potential? So Matt, what do you think? What do you think requires a hypothesis to transform into a product versus remaining as something with potential? Uh, that's a such a loaded question. I know, like, and I love the reaction so, that you have. <laughs> that's because I was like, that could go. I could take this like eighteen different ways. Um, mm. I mean, what exactly requires the hypothesis, or requires that the hypothesis become a viable product versus something that is just potential? Does anybody want it? Like that's that's going to be the, the like main driver. Does anybody care about it? Does anybody want it? Is it a is mm -hmm. it? I hate to just like immediately go back to like viable, but like, is yeah. it feasible? It, it, like that's another one is it is it even possible mm -hmm. like yeah so I, I would say just taking it back to viability and feasibility and things like that like is, is the and does anybody want it so that would yeah. be my answer at least that's such a hard question to answer does someone actually want it what if there's multiple products out there like why is yours unique like why why would people would specifically want your product if there's other competitive solutions out there and that's where i bring back the importance of product market fit people i'm just saying you got you gotta you gotta nail that like you can't just create the next instagram and it just not do anything different than what instagram does i'm just saying but to to define what technically product market fit means product market fit <laughs> means is the degree to which a product satisfies a strong market demand and i think of 
uh, when Amazon first started and um, there wasn't really a strong online bookstore presence. Not that I can remember. I know Barnes and Noble had like an online website and some bookstores had like an online website. Um, but Amazon really dominated fairly quickly and they wanted, they wanted to have a retail presence, but it's, I, I just remember experiencing Amazon being so easily feasible and why would I go to a bookstore now? Why would I even bother going to barnesandnoble.com because Amazon is so cheap and easily accessible. But um, what, do, what do you think, Jake? What do you think of product market fit? I would say in addition to all of the great points made, um, <laughs> to me is the is like the, the balance of what the team and the organization, if you're, if you're working in an organization, need out of the experiment. Um, mm-hmm. Do you really have the space? And let's say you're, you're not on an innovation island. A lot of companies create these innovation islands that they have the space to just go through a series of these MVPs. Um, mm-hmm. I am very convinced that each of us can build with the MVP mentality, but we have to have the space for that. We have to fund that. We have to expect there's a certain degree of, of experimentation, learning and failure in order to prove or validate that there is potential in a particular idea or solution to one day be a product. Um, so I'd say that's, that's where my mind goes first is how we really created the space for that. Um, mm-hmm. does the team have the routines in, in place to actually, talk to customers and take that feedback and and have the time to experiment with a better solution or tweak the solution before it goes out. Um, the other thing that comes to my mind is when organizations say they want these really big changes, they want an entirely new product line, they want an entirely new uh, transformation of some sort with technology, um, is are, are we approaching that that same initiative, that same big, big brain, big uh, idea thinking in a way that can be tested into, in a way that could be broken down with some interme- uh, incremental feature delivery. I was I was just talking to someone recently um, who's in a leadership role at a healthcare company and they're rolling out their electronic uh, medical records to an entire system. I was like, wow, that, that sounds like a lot of risk. That sounds like a lot of people will be involved in this big day one go live. Is there any way that that could have been broken down maybe by a particular branch or a particular a department within a particular hospital, even if you have to roll it out, let's say across the whole system, is there a cross section of that system that you could experiment and validate just to know that it worked before going at at every level of the organization in those systems and networks? So there's a lot of ways to slice and dice uh, how you're building incrementally. But I think the when I think of what you what you've said with going from potential to product is you mm-hmm. you validated along the way in order to build momentum. The organization has momentum. There's again funding and space to allow that momentum to be become the catalyst of what a great product can be. Definitely, and you completely hit the space for having this mindset of essentially a scientist of continuously validating your hypothesis until it grows into of what was an MVP to a product. And sometimes organizations don't have the space for that. Maybe they're still in a mindset of project management. Maybe they're still in the mindset of, we're gonna deliver this really, really dumbed down feature at this date, let's just iterate on it. But that's that's not the, the evolution of a product. That's not the, the nature of cyclical experimentation. And there's this reference material that um, I constantly have been going back to a lot lately with Lean Startup by Eric Rice, the five types of MVPs. And um, the five types being, if all you listeners out there that don't know, so the first type is smoke tests. The second type, sell before you build. 
Concierge MVP, Wizard of Oz MVP, and Single Feature Product MVP. And how sometimes an MVP may not have code, but there is still a hypothesis that remains within that container of that MVP that is waiting to be validated. And um, how do you guys, how do you all think organizations interpret these five types of MVPs? I'm going to ask you, MC. What do you think? I think they ignore it, and I think most <laughs> organ most organizations will say, um, I need a fully-fledged solution that handles every single edge case that will provide all downstream data automatically without human intervention to the other disparate teams that are going to utilize the downstream impacts of our system. And I think that's where most organizations fail to to understand um, you don't need to build the monolithic thing to achieve value, right? Um, yeah. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm teaching folks about, about Agile and taking this iterative approach, it's, you know, look, if, if someone came in and wrote a blank check to Microsoft Word or to Microsoft to rebuild Microsoft Word, do you think mail merge is going to be one of the first features in the first release? <laughs> Hell no. Nobody uses mail merge anymore. I'm just, I feel bad that I even know what it is and how it works. You know, um, so that's kind of the point, right? Like if you look at that, if we say we're going to rebuild Word and we have to launch this as an MVP, what is that Mm -hmm. first iteration going to look like, right? You're going to have like basic text formatting, bullets, italics, underlines, links, right? Just like that basic level of functionality. And I suspect that's going to serve 80% of your users. And what the company should do at that point is, hey, let me take a step back. Do I need to build mail merge? Do I need to be able to put a table inside of my Word document? Mm. You know, you, we can do all these things. Should we do all these things? And are they going to provide enough value in order for us to do it? And I think the companies that look at we have to build this monolithic thing that solves every use case for every potential user who might use it once on a Saturday, you know, uh, once a month, and they and they wind up not building an MVP and they spend twice as much as they should on a product. Yeah, and the, the longer like it sits like in i guess in the build phase uh we we touched on this in a previous episode too the risk goes up like that's the definition of not done right there so the sooner you can validate your your hypothesis um the more information that you have to understand your next hypothesis and when you when the the story that you shared mc where the organization wants this monolithic like enormous like product that's not even an mvp anymore it's like they they miss the train stop of target customer they miss the train on target problem because like the the stakeholders and the users are all going to give you like this laundry list of problems and like you got to pick one first like one's got to be the target that you got to pursue first to validate to know that if are you even wasting your time on working on this product does it truly have a need for the customer and fit the product market fit um but that ties into one of the resistances that we think or experience in organizations where the organization, um, this, the business stakeholders specifically, wants a guarantee of where their investment is going. So, Matt, I'm gonna look at you for that one because I know you got you got excited about that topic. I did <laughs> because I just what investment do you make that has a hundred percent guarantee? For like real? that's that's not an investment. That is just I don't know what the hell that is because there's no guarantees. There's not absolutes on this kind of stuff. Like you want to, tr- oh, you have a guarantee. I will interject. I have one guarantee. Oh boy, taxes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Dogecoin to the moon. Oh, okay, okay. He was gonna bring that one up. 
<laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I think of a vending machine, maybe? Like, you know, like, those vending machines you see at, like, supermarket had, like, all kinds of random shit in there. And you, like, you put in your money, and you're going to get something back. Like, here is your investment of where your, your spirit change was. But, yeah, I agree Except with for that. the one day, except for the one day when the, the metal coil doesn't push out your bag it's of stuck. potato chips. Yeah. <laughs> And you're like Sorry, on the damn vending machine. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, Matt. Go ahead. No, that's yeah. all good, man. I mean, just what I said, like the how, like what world do you live in where you know you have a hundred percent guarantee and you know that nothing will ever go wrong? That that my idea is one hundred percent solid. That it is going to change the world. What type of investment? exists that is exactly like that like you buy a house the house market could go up the housing market could go down mm -hmm. you you invest in your 401k and then a pandemic hits and everything starts to tank like you can't you can you can predict that there's a pandemic but most people ignore that because of the just small possibility that it's going to happen yep. but that possibility still exists so the idea that a business stakeholder could ask for something and say, I want a 100% guarantee that this is this. Not only are you going to deliver this, mm. but it's going to provide the value that I assume it's going to provide. That's just that's just ridiculous. Or as Tabby likes to say all the time, absurd. Like, absurd. Yes. <laughs> that is that is my word. That's my PC word for other language. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jake, I want to ask you a specific question. Um, so usability. With usability testing, some would argue that um, usability defines a product. But when it comes to smoke test MVP and sell before you buy MVP, um, how does usability testing fall there if there's not an actual tangible product for them to use? So I think it, it takes different forms. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'll bring a very recent top of mind work example in um, where, where we have this grand vision of a, a long-term service, I'll call it, uh, that'll have like deep integrations, cross-company integrations. It's really compelling and it potentially could be a really good differentiated feature. But before we go to about any of the integrations that we have planned, we've mm -hmm. set up a very simple phone call. Uh, you call a phone number and it goes to the other company's call center and you you can in its in its essence still solve the same customer problem. You can still you can still get the value out of it, but it's it's literally just a, a phone number that you call a call center for someone to answer it. They take your information and they can they can give you that product. Um, that to me, it like where's the UAT testing? Is it picking up the phone? Is it getting the email? I think it just takes different forms. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times it's referred to like end to end testing. But the most important thing and, and the reason the reason this is like really top of mind for me is our, our team did an end-to-end -end test this week and they made sure that the call went through and that the call was properly routed, but they never made sure that a call center agent was going to answer the phone. And come to find out, the call center agents were trained for it. Apparently, they also weren't being routed the numbers and it was going to immediately uh, send you to a voicemail. And so that was that was something that luckily a lot of people were watching uh, on, on the day that it went live and, and we were able to catch that pretty quickly and some changes were made in the system to, to solve for that. But to me, that's an example of like, let's think of this big, long, long-term vision. Let's focus on the value that that could potentially provide. How do we test into that? How do we validate there's still a need? Even if it's more rudimentary than this, you know, very robust integration, 
it can still be somewhat advanced with like in, in this instance a phone number and call routing things like that but I, I know we also talk about mvps as even simple things like a banner like how many people are willing to uh call a number uh, interested in the banner or yeah. a kickstarter things like that there's there's a lot of different ways to do that but i think to answer your question again very directly is you have to follow the user journey whatever mm -hmm. that uat looks like whatever you expect to validate that you're along the the road to uncovering a, a user need and solving a problem you have to you have to just follow the journey what's the user going to do exactly i i'm so glad you nailed that because user journeys are so important when you do user interviews and let's say like you're at the early early stages of your mvp let's say you're you're at the smoke test mvp i can easily see a user interview in the empathy phase of design thinking that we love and you you map out this 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 wireframe this bare minimum wireframe or user journey map for a smoke test that you just you just want to validate am i even going in the right direction am i just thinking if am i out of my mind to even be going in this direction let me do this smoke test mvp let me create this really minimum user journey map of this wireframe and just show it to someone and just just kind of get their feedback understanding who my target customer is and maybe you don't know who your target customer is in the beginning it's just like average joe from across the street but we we hope that you do enough research to know who your target customer is when you begin those user interviews but um i'm going to transition us to another another controversial topic um two words project plans Yay, we, we love we love those those two words and how how often does um, leadership want a sequential product roadmap, but they don't actually want a product roadmap. They want they, they want a project plan. They want a guarantee and keeps going back to the guarantee. Yeah, they want their deliverables. They want mm -hmm. like we, we we broke down this entire entire solution and now there's 15 bullet points and we want to check it off. So I was going to say, so one area where I have a semi controversial stance in the agile space is mm -hmm. Is that the hit? Like, is the roadmap project? Is that the hill you want to die on? Like, <laughs> just give them, give them. Uh, yeah, this is if best case scenario. This is the direction we're gonna go, but eh, it's probably mm -hmm. gonna change. Like, like, what's the point in fighting and saying I'm not gonna give you a, a roadmap or I'm not gonna give you a project plan? Like, give it to them if it makes them feel happy, but yeah. make sure they have the understanding of like it's gonna change. It's going right. to absolutely change in some way, shape, or form. Whether you cut funding, you give more funding. Or we find out that Joe Schmo isn't the right user, that it that it's, you know, Sally over there, she's the right user. So it's gonna change. And and I think every business leader has an understanding that ever that things change. Mm -hmm. But it's the I think it's a lack of confidence, right? And it's it's this like folks most folks climb the ladder because they're they have a, a thing with control. Right. And mm -hmm. they get to a point where they're no longer doing the work and now they start micromanaging because they don't trust anyone to do it. And that's why I think most of these folks ask for these project plans, because they want to see, you know, Jake, I'm paying you a lot of money, but I don't see the work that you're doing. So I need Who's to know, that? Jake, do you have a plan to get from the one yard line to the other one yard line and score me a damn touchdown? I need to know. And when you say, here you go, coach, here's my playbook, man, they don't even look at it all. They're like, eh, yeah, oh, there's a playbook. Right. Great. Awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so how they're they gonna, react. <laughs> and, and they're going to glance at it and say, all right, yeah, good enough. And they're going to move on. They just need to know, do you have a semblance of a plan? They, they expect that you're going to zig and zag. Do they? Always? Because I've worked with 
plenty of organizations where if you present a project plan or a timeline or a Gantt chart or whatever the hell you want to call it, they take that as like gospel. Like you, you promised me. And the example I used to use at a different organization was look at the um, projected path of hurricanes. That is the perfect example of oh boy where a product's going to go. As you look at a projected map, there's usually like 35 different routes of which way it can go based on which way the wind changes. And so would that not be a hell of a template? So you know what I'm going to build this. This is the hurricane projection roadmap of the, of the whatever product we're building. I think we just found a new buzzword. So I was like, shit, I'm going to steal that. But I said it anyway. (laughs) 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 Okay. Yes. Okay. I got to contain my laughter on this mic. That was a really good one. Um, yes, I I completely agree with you, MC. Like, have a hurricane forecast. Like, it, it, I guess in the words of Doctor Strange in um, in Infinity War, he went through so many paths of how the world was going to be saved, and there was only one option where it was going to happen. So you think of that mindset. That's that's the mindset of a scientist because they don't know. They're they're going to experiment with the guardrails that they have of their hypothesis, and it could go in very many directions. But they have that open mindset. Now. Project plans, though, they can very easily transition to the expectations of what the stakeholder has of the product order very easily. Like if the stakeholder is pushing for, I want a project plan, I want these deliverables, I want finite dates for each deliverable, the product owner might think, oh, I got to put on my project manager hat. I, I, I probably should just put down my product owner hat and be a project manager. So that brings me to the next resistance of product owners, some product owners, not all, some may carry um, historical skill sets of a project manager and may not mature over time and remain a project manager versus the entrepreneurs and scientists we hope them to be. What are your thoughts, Matt? I think one of the most underutilized, well, not even underutilized, just non-existent. Well, try to think of a better word than non-existent, especially since Jake's on the call. If I say like a product <laughs> person, like does not have the ability to ex, uh, to manage expectations of their stakeholders. I feel like that's rare in a lot of the product owners I've worked with because they hear, oh, the business wants this. Okay, they understand that they can't get everything at once, right? Like there, you can't get blood from a stone is something a boss used to tell me all the time. So if you can't deliver it, what's the point of promising it? So manage those expectations. Let them know that like, if you're saying that the date is fixed, the scope probably needs to be flexible. The, uh, like I know the old school project manager ideal of like, well, the scope's fixed and the, um, or excuse me, the date and cost are fixed. So the scope has to be negotiable versus the scope is fixed versus date and cost. Like you can't get everything. It's like that good, was it good, fast, good, fast, cheap triangle. You, you can't oh, get yeah. everything. So you, so as a good product manager, as a good product owner, you need to manage the expectations of the people that are coming to you and asking for things. If you don't, they expect everything now and they get mad when they don't get it. And getting mad early on saying, I'm not going to give you that is a completely different level of mad than I promised you I was going to give you this and then I didn't deliver. So managing Definitely. expectations is huge huge part of that which is actually missed a lot exactly and you just you think about a specific point in the 
I guess, in the evolution of your product and you reach a sprint review, let's say, and you're, you're in a room with the customers, the stakeholders, the, the whole audience, and you showcase them at, like a really, really neat feature that um, you you were excited to, to, to speak to. And they're just responding with, wait, we didn't talk about this. Where did this come from? And how like that poor product owner, oh man, that poor product owner is on like on, like on the on the burning scale in front of everybody because there is a loss in communication and there is a misalignment in managing those expectations. But Jake, I'm gonna ask you the same question um, that I asked Matt. Like, what do you think happens with product owners who don't mature as the entrepreneurs and scientists we hope them to be, but they remain project managers? Sure, that's a great question um, and something that happens a lot in in our industry. I'll also mm-hmm. say a, a great product person loves the the user, loves the the customer and loves their problem. Um, that person can come up, so to speak, from anywhere. Like there's fantastic people who have come from a development background or a quality background, or maybe it's the business background. I mean, it's, I think the sign of a great organization is their effective, uh, their ability to effectively identify who is and who is not a product person by their, uh, their, their passion and their perception. Uh, Cause a lot of the other, like how to talk to a user, how to conduct a good user interview, how to write good requirements. A lot of those things can be trainable. Uh, the first thing I look is, is, is this person really convicted to solve a user problem? Um, so I'd say that's, that's where I would normally try to start in that like career progression, coaching, mentoring conversation. Um, to answer your question directly, if someone is coming in that maybe you don't have a lot of that, uh, organizational influence and coaching and they're, they're, they're just reskinned as a, uh, product manager because of an agile transformation. And all of a sudden, like somebody has to be this PO person or something here. It's you, it's you. uh, <laughs> to me, yeah. <laughs> to me, I would say the, the important difference, difference in their thinking is being outcome focused, not output focused. And we've yeah. talked, I mean, everything we just covered about roadmaps and delivery and um, having transparency to the capacity of the team and the, the things that they can build is great. But if the focus is all output, you, you've almost set your team up for failure from the very beginning, because no matter how much output they, they ship and potentially even how many stakeholders they please, in the long run, they're not going to be able to solve customer problems and deliver customer outcomes, which is ultimately what you should be being paid for in a product role. And so I would say that shift, and um, I think I talked last time I was on about OKRs. OKRs are great. It's a framework that I use a lot. But instead of someone saying, I'm going to you know, deliver eight widgets by the end of the month, I would much rather say I'm going to solve eight user problems or I'm going to increase the usage, the, the usage or any engagement 10%. Let's measure that. We'll figure out the series of ideas, not features, not, not hard, you know, business requirements, documents, and all these other things. They're ideas. <laughs> Let's call them what they are. Yeah. Uh, the, what is the series of ideas that we're actually going to build to try to solve that? So that's that that project mentality is is actually really critical to the to the product role because you do have to do the stakeholder management that we just talked about. You do have to balance how much time you're investing into something um, and the quality, of course, as well. So, like, I, I actually think that most of us are project managers. Like, we all have 24 hours in a day. What time we're spending doing what, uh, how transparent yeah. are we to our <laughs> capacity uh, and and constraints? Like, if you look at just a good employee, they have a lot of that same skill set. And I think in product, it's even more important because. The, it's so critical in that role to be able to balance and uh, the team and the ideas and how much time you're spending and again experimentation delivery as well. But at the end of it, all of that, 
you have to be solving a problem. It has to be the, the, so what now what has, has to be, we're solving a problem. And that's a lot, unfortunately it's the, not where a lot of project managers end up getting in their and their perspectives. So something we can all continuously learn um, and continuously mm. improve. Yeah, definitely. And I like that you called out that at our core, we do have skill sets of project managers. Like they don't need to be reprimanded so much. Um, we could definitely meet in the middle, but um, you definitely have to step up as a product owner because you have a lot more at stake, in my opinion, when you're a product owner versus a project manager. Because um, with with projects, you, you kind of have a clear pathway. You have a clear pathway of what you're going to deliver. You're going to deliver in phases. Everything is mapped out. All the requirements are there. You're just you're just going to do it and check like mark mark the checkboxes off. And I know that's a very bare minimum like version of me explaining project management. But I think of that mindset versus um, a product owner who's trying to innovate. And I got to speak for product owners out there that are maybe just first starting out as a product owner. Your job is not easy. At all. I think there's a player in, in the entire Agile industry that has an opinion about your role. And you're you're going to have an opportunity to be critiqued by so many people in this Agile industry. And I got to empathize for the product owner. Like, you, you still step up to the job. You step up to the role. And I try to advocate for um, the product owners in a manner to be passionate about product, right? And be passionate about, about your role. That is not just a job, but be passionate about what you're experimenting with. MC, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, a couple things to add to that, though. Um, so, yeah, be passionate about it, care about what you do. But there comes a point where you've got to be able to detach emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I learned, uh, and like, I learned this myself, or I experienced this myself, and I had to honestly take a step back. Um, I was giving a demo to somebody, and they said something that no customer has ever said about my product. And they said, this feels really cluttered. And like, I literally leaned back in the demo, like, really? No one's ever said that before. Yeah. And I, I, and it completely threw me off for the rest of the demo. Um, and eventually I came back to it after myself and I had to, I like literally just looked at it and I was like, I need to find another design person that I know that's never seen my product yeah. that can tell me, is there something about this that's cluttered? And I got some really good feedback out of it, but you know, some one, one person on my team was like, yeah, but you know, that person's never going to use our product. So we really shouldn't care what they have to say. And I'm like, no, we can't think about it that way no. mm -hmm. because they're, they're giving us honest feedback. It's the first time they've ever seen it. And you know, we can call their feedback complete BS or we can look at it and say, okay, is there something in here? Let's pull that thread a little bit. So that's where I say you got to detach the emotion from it. Cause I, the natural human inclination is, oh my God, someone's attacking my baby. Yeah, right? exactly. Got, Just stabbing I, they, it. They... <laughs> so they got dark real quick. Oh, yeah. So you know, you've got to be able Leave to de detach that. Yes. <laughs> you've got to be able to detach that, that human emotion and understand that, that, look, you're building a product and you may not always make the right decision. And, and, and like you said, Tabby, it, it's a hard job. And to be frank, it's probably the hardest job in the whole agile sphere of any of the frameworks that are out there because you've got to please the developers you know to make sure you're giving them proper requirements you got to mm -hmm. please the users you got to please the business stakeholder you got to please the architect over there who's pissed off that you're still using this old or archaic whatever tech stack <laughs> and you're not deploying properly like you've got to please so many people and you've got to be able to juggle and balance those things and, and again that's where i come back to just the emotion of it there's times that it being emotional about your product is, I think, incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. But there's other times where you, you've got to be able to gut check yourself and say, like, 
am, 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 am I like too invested in this? Yeah, definitely. And that's where the, the scientist comes into play because the scientist is just going to look at the data of what he or she validated from that hypothesis. And they need to understand, what do I do now? Now that I like, what do I do with this validation of this hypothesis? And it's very, you can't bring emotion into it because otherwise it's going to compromise and create bias for your next step. But you, you have to stay objective to understand, okay, this is, this is the result of what my experiment did with my hypothesis. Let me analyze this to understand what the next step is. And um, that's why maybe compassion isn't trying to be showcased as emotional. Compassion as trying to showcase empathy, a big, big part of design thinking. But Matt, um, you've been making all kinds of facial expressions. What's going through your head? It keeps coming back to the whole like hypothesis and scientific method type thing where we're in, we're living in this world now, which is just completely ass backwards when it comes to how we prove a hypothesis. When you create a hypothesis, your first inclination should be, how can I prove this wrong? That's not what people do anymore. People mm. get attached, they get emotional, they have their cognitive bias, they have their recency bias, they're all the 8,000 different types of bias that <laughs> bias, people are talking yes. about nowadays. And they try to prove themselves right. They look for any little thing that says, okay, I'm on the right path versus looking for all that information that says, I'm going the wrong way, that I am dead wrong. And I've worked with plenty of people over the years that literally just cannot fathom I am wrong versus, mm -hmm. but the flip side of that is also people that question whether they're wrong all the time and they start getting that imposter syndrome. They start questioning themselves, their, their motivation and their confidence drops. So there is a balance to that. But at the end of the day, when we're saying don't get emotionally attached to your, get emotionally attached to the product, to the problem, but not the mm -hmm. solution because the solution right. that you're coming up with is, it might be wrong. And yeah. if it's wrong, it does no one any good to just latch onto that and be like, I'm not giving this up because that's just gonna just keep leading you down the wrong way. No, I just wanna add to that, right? You say, you say your solution may be wrong. I will challenge that and say, at some point in time, your solution will be wrong. And you've got to understand that it's not always going to be right. It could be right this week. It could be right for the next five years, right? That's where we have to consistently do those experiments and try to tweak and turn and, and, and gradually, you know, mold the product as our users and the problems evolve. Because again, you know, you could solve the problem for the next five years and you rest on your laurels and someone's going to come in and pull the rug out right from underneath you because they learned and and this crazy right like most most people are not super devoted to the product that they're using they can find another one that's comparable you know comparable price um fit fits right in and it just it does all the same stuff just a little bit better right mm -hmm. maybe the ui's a little less confusing for them and they're like you know what i prefer this a little and less cluttered jump <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> that that was perfectly timed. I would like to bring in another another heavy heavy question. One more, if you guys will bear with me here. This was such a great great episode. Um, so when you're taking emotion out of let's say your product, your MVP, isn't sometimes emotion a great trigger for innovation? And let me tell you why. Because I'm I'm gonna bring Iron Man into this situation. Because in Iron Man three, 
That man was going through all kinds of PTSD from New York, okay? And, like, he made over 85 Iron Man suits because he couldn't sleep at night. Like, he, he needed, like, all the protection in the world to make sure New York doesn't happen again. So he pushed himself. And, yeah, he went through some bad habits of sleep deprivation and just workaholism. But he came up with an even better version of the Iron Man suit that kicked his ass in New York in Avengers. So if you think about it, sometimes doesn't it merit to bring emotion into the solution because it's driving innovation? But maybe that's an outlier. So what do you think, Jake? Because Matt and MC are losing their minds. But I'm going to go to you, Jake. I'm losing my mind over the constant Iron Man references. (laughs) (laughs) No, I... I uh, I agree. There's a ton of emotion in what we do. Um, yeah, it, there should be. There, it, we talk about empathy. You can't have empathy without some degree of compassion and emotion. I, I think we talked about this last time, maybe about the uh, platinum rule of like Southwest Airlines: uh, don't treat people how you want to be treated, but treat people how they want to be treated. Um, that's that that kind of broke my brain a few years ago when I heard that, and it's true. Is our we have to we have to build a product to solve a user need. It has nothing to do with our needs. Uh, has nothing to do with how much pride and ego we have in our potential solutions. Um, I love Matt's point about the the alternate or null hypothesis. Um, being able to really pull on that and say like, okay, if we are wrong, we're actually going to go in this direction. If we are right, we're we're going to go in this direction. Articulating those things ahead of time make the rest of the process more objective. Um, we're we're being trusted in the product role. We are being trusted by the organization to make objective decisions on a daily basis to drive that outcome. And if, if we have emotion and, and compassion for the user problem, it's great. But at some point, we, we do have to take that more objective stance, addressing our bias, understanding that you know, we're, not, we're not going to uh, be able to solve the problem correctly every time. All of that being said, something that I, I think all of us could use more of in our product uh, lives is uh, conviction. When you yes. do believe you are onto something, and when you do believe you have uh, uh, an outcome worth solving and a, and a solution that potentially addresses that need, having some some degree healthy is, is the hard part to find it, mm-hmm. find that line of what's healthy. But having a conviction to fully solve the problem, to really understand if you're addressing the the customer's need, finding that market, it might be that your solution is just the wrong solution for that market. And it's actually a fantastic solution for another market. So that's the hard part of product management is understanding really when to invest, another word that keeps coming up, to invest (laughs) in uh, staying the course versus making a pivot. Like startups too many times say, oh, we're learning, we're experimenting. And they, they just work themselves in circles and they don't have a rudder. There's not a steady direction. Um, telling someone recently at work, we, we are the rudder of the organization. We, we are a massive ship, but we and product are the rudder. It is a, a small but mighty force. <laughs> and it takes time to shift these things. But at some point, we do have to plot a, a course and we do have to follow that with some degree of conviction. So I think uh, emotion plays out a little bit there as well. I love that reference. I'm just a little disappointed that we deterred from the hurricane and the multiple plotting of the paths i thought we were on weather and you took us back to boats <laughs> a little disappointed in you there jake um, hurricanes and boats can I've, be compared how are you gonna how are you gonna how are you gonna sail your boat in a hurricane you can throw that out there too we can make that part of this oh random ass idea that we're coming up with <laughs> Okay, depends on the boat. What's the scope of the boat? <laughs> you know, but I think like something to touch on, like what Jake said, is like emotion. Emotion is very important to inspiration, but you can't get tied into it 
Like you, you can't not have it if you're just a robot, completely unempathetic to anybody else. You have Dramas. no emotions. Yeah, you're just you're just a, you're no. Well, I guess I would say Ultron if we're going to try to go, but he's got a <laughs> yeah, lot of some true. emotions. Um, Dramas cared. <laughs> <laughs> like so, when you. It's like human nature, when something happens, the first thing that happens is your emotions are triggered. It, everybody likes to say, oh, I'm a logical person. Bullshit. Every Lies. single time something happens, your emotions are always triggered first, and then your logical center of your brain is triggered next. It just depends on how big that gap is between from the time you get emotional to the time you start thinking logically. And if you get stuck on that emotion of, I am, I love this idea, this is my baby, I'm not letting this go. I'll protect it at all costs without logically thinking through that mm. maybe it's a ba baby rattlesnake and it's going to grow up and it's going to bite me and it's going to kill me. Like you Ooh, have one reference. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but like there, you just got to, in, in, I'm just saying the point of emotion is important for inspiration, but you have to think through this stuff logically. Like emotion Definitely. is very important to driving the innovations that we want as product people and as business people. But don't let it don't don't just use emotion. You gotta actually put some thought into it. Definitely. All right, everyone. Well, we we gotta end at that note, sadly. But uh, that brings a great episode in the future, maybe someday, of the psychology of a product owner. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, so I want to thank Matt and Jake once again for joining us in today's episode. Minimum viable potential. Thank you again, Matt. No problem. Thank you for having me again. And thank you again, Jake. <laughs> Good to be here. All right. And all you listeners out there, thanks for joining us again in today's episode. Stay tuned for the next one coming up real soon. Agile Disrupted. Mm -hmm.